Ms. Marshall, and I'm glad that you are with us this morning. A little warm in here. Try to keep your attention. Um, I will say that the, the thought of giving via text is a little... I, we got to do it. It's just a little bit weird to me to hear that. Now, I, knew that I knew that was coming, but uh, it's just we're entering the 21st century here at Grace Press, so uh, not exactly the most tech savvy. Uh, I'm going to pray this morning f- before we get started, and I'm actually going to use an old prayer um, about the gospel of Luke to which we turn our attention. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, who, you, who called Luke the doctor, whose praise is in the gospel, to be an evangelist and physician of the soul. May it please you by the wholesome medicines of the doctrine delivered by him that all the diseases of our souls may be healed through the merits of your son, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'm going to say a word, a name, and I want to know what pops in your imagination. Jesus. Jesus, what is your impression? Do you have a mental image? Is there a thought that comes to you? Is there a feeling when you hear the name Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. We're starting a new sermon series today, this fall, The Life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. I'm calling the sermon series, Jesus Unexpected. And my contention is that Jesus is like a finely cut diamond, that every time you return it, there is a different and beautiful refraction of life. You can keep turning the diamond and continue to get different, even infinite refractions of life. There's always something new. There's always something fresh. Jesus is always unexpected. Whether you're in the church for the first time, perhaps you've decided to come, or you're joining us online, uh, and you're here and you're investigating Jesus, you've maybe just heard his name, which is true for some, even in America today, and you're investigating Jesus for the first time, or if, like Walter, you've been following Jesus for, for a few years. I don't think Walter would mind you. He's 90 years old and very healthy. He's been following Jesus a long time. Jesus always has something to offer. He is ever interesting. And to my mind, he is inexhaustible. You know, they say that you judge the size of a ship by the wake that it leaves. You judge a ship the size of it by the wake that it leaves. Well, no one has left a bigger wake in this world, in history, than Jesus. Let me just give you a few samplings. First, from a famous atheist from a century ago, H.G. Wells. He writes this, Historians like myself, H.G. Wells says, who does not even call himself a Christian, find the picture centering irresistibly around the life and the character of this most significant man. The historian's test of an individual's greatness is, what did he leave to grow? Does he start people to thinking along fresh lines? By this test, Jesus stands first. Another, maybe you've heard this line, that all the armies that have ever marched, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned have not had the impact on the world of this one solitary life. 
this following idea. I can't remember if it comes from Philip Yancey or Tim Keller or Richard Bauckham. I think it's Phil Yancey, but I'm attributing all, a lot of my ideas to those three today. But it says this, among the world's religion, there are only two people who have provoked people to ask the question, not just who are you, but what are you? And those two people are Buddha, Siddhartha, and Jesus. But the difference between Buddha and Jesus is that Buddha went to great lengths to claim, I am not divine. I am enlightened, but not divine. But on the other hand, Jesus repeatedly, continually says, I am divine. In fact, you should worship me. One of the things that's astonishing about Jesus is Jesus' claims are so self-centered. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Worship me. I and the Father are one. I am the Son of God. His claims are so self-centered, and yet his actions are so unself-centered. He is a conundrum. And if you'll take the time and humble yourself and really pay attention, it is, it's, it's, you almost can't look away. Because in Jesus we see the combination of one who is both majestic and humble. One who prizes justice, but also practices mercy and forgives. He was both tender and without weakness. He was bold without being harsh. He was humble but confident without uncertainty. He was powerful, yet he wasn't insensitive. He had integrity without being rigid. Scripture simultaneously pictures Jesus as both a lion and a lamb, both. Now, I have commended a book to you, and I honestly think it's in my top ten books of, I'll say it, I think it's of all time, Um, Tom Holland's book, Dominion. I spoke of this a couple of years ago. Tom Holland's book, Dominion. And it's a big book, but I commend it to your reading. And I want to summarize a review I read of that book recently by a man named Gerald Highstand, summarizing Dominion. I, I found this compelling summary in many ways, not just of the book, but of Tom Holland's life. Here's Tom Holland's life. Tom Holland was raised in the UK, and he was the son of a devout Christian mother and an atheistic father. He was raised with Bible stories, but as a young man, as a little boy, what captured his imagination was not so much the story of Jesus and the Jews. What captured his imagination were the powerful empires, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Romans, the Greeks. And as he grew older, he embraced his father's atheism. He eventually got a Ph.D. in history and came to be a popular writer of the powers, the raw power of the ancient world. As I said, he was attracted by the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the apex predators of the ancient world. The Tyrannosaurus Rex, he calls them, the great white sharks of the ancient world. But the more that Holland, Tom Holland, delved into the classical world, the more he became glad that he didn't live there. You know, it's fun to watch a great white shark on Shark Week on TV, but swimming with them, not so fun. In the ancient world, you have the eugenics of the Spartans, the slavery of the Romans, the routine routine slaughter in the gladiatorial combats, the throwing away of children, especially girls, the subjection of women to men, powerful men's every desire, public crucifixion, torture. It's like a horror movie to live in ancient Rome without power. And so as Tom Holland entered midlife, he became increasingly aware of the vastly different moral assumptions of the world he lived in, the modern world, and the world that he wrote about, the ancient world. And he begins to ask the question about eight or ten years ago, what happened? 
Why the change from that world to this? A breaking point for him, a breaking point for him intellectually was 2017 and the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement. Because the moral assumptions of the modern world and the ancient world could not be more diametrically opposed in the moment of Me Too. Because he said, if all the best things about our world are the fruit of antiquity, he started to wonder, why was he as a man so immediately sympathetic with the assaulted women of the Me Too movement? As a, why, would I be, why would I be sympathetic? Given what I know about the past, I would not be sympathetic in the past. Why am I sympathetic to these women as a modern man? His concern for marginalized and assaulted women was decidedly not Greco-Roman. What happened? What changed? Why is might not always right? Well, in short, and it was unexpected to all and especially unexpected to Tom Holland himself, what happened, as he studied historically, was Jesus. And specifically, Jesus on a cross. He contends, it's a powerful image he gives in in an interview. He says that Jesus is like the, the life and death of Jesus and the resurrection is like a depth charge that is dropped into the sea into the turbulent sea of the Greco-Roman culture. The immediate explosion was not felt immediately, but the ripple effects utterly transformed the Western world. Now, the book Dominion, several hundred pages, I think it's five or six hundred pages long, his canvas is enormous. Everything from the Babylonians to the Beatles, uh, from St. Michael to Occupy Wall Street. But his contention, and I buy most of it, is that everything from our conceptions of service, justice, Progress, life, equality, liberty, and especially our conceptions of power and love. Love was not a preeminent virtue in the, early, uh, in the ancient world. And power was only about yourself, not serving the weak, the vulnerable, the victims. He would have, the ancient world would have no idea of victimhood. All of those, especially love and power and the way they change, are largely conceivable and largely traceable to Jesus, inconceivable without Jesus and largely traceable to Jesus. So this fall, we turn our attention. We turn to look in his face, as it were, to the man who changed history. Not only does his birth divide history between CE and BCE, BC and AD, whatever, however you want to call it, and not only did his life unalterably change the direction of the world, but he is living He is knowable. Yes, he is unexpected, but he can be known. You can have a relationship with him, and he can and does still change lives. Jesus, unexpected. Jesus, unexpected. I'm so excited. I've loved studying for this. Now, this week... With that long introduction, I've got to fly. This could, what, what follows could be three sermons, and so I'm going to try to hone in on the most important part of each of these three points. Because what I want us to see are the, as a historical claim about Jesus, a theological claim about Jesus, and a personal claim from Jesus to us. A historical, theological, and personal. It's a little bit more heady than normal, especially the first two points. But first, a historical claim about Jesus. Now, these first four verses in the Gospel of Luke, look with me in your Bibles if you have them in front of you. They are an elegant introduction to this Gospel. Now, we call this book the Gospel of Luke. Now, Luke does not say he wrote the book. Um, he does not mention himself. But we know a couple things. One, this is part of a two-volume work. The other is the Acts of the Apostles. 
And in the Acts of the Apostles, there are several sections where Luke is present and he refers to, he says we. So we assume that he is the author of that book and therefore this book. So by church tradition, pretty good evidence and implication, we believe this gospel is written by a man named Luke. Luke was a medical physician, which might explain his attention to the healings and the physical ailments in the stories. Interesting, Luke was a Gentile, a non-Jew. He's actually the only non-Jewish writer in all of the Bible. The only non-Jewish writer in all of the 66 books of the Bible. And that fact may explain why as a relative outsider among a group that was primarily very Jewish at the outset... This might explain why he is so concerned both with the universal implications of salvation for all people. And Luke is also concerned with the least, the lost, the lonely. But as an outsider, he had an eye for outsiders. But we have in these opening verses is a formal introduction. Now, this is very much unlike the other three Gospels. The four Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The other three Gospels don't have an introduction quite like this. Uh, this is very much unlike those Gospels, but it is very much in line with introductions of important books back then. For instance, there's a lot of echoes between this and the introduction to Josephus' history. Okay? This is very much a Roman introduction to a book. But this sentence, verses 1 to 4, is very carefully constructed. And Luke is establishing both how he compiled this work and why it should be trusted as history. Why it matters. How he compiled it, why it matters. Verse 2 He basically says, I used sources, most likely including the Gospel of Mark, which was written prior. Verse 3, and not just that I used sources, verse 2, but verse 3 says, I wanted to write an orderly account to begin from the beginning and to move forward. Not exhaustive, but orderly. And then verse 4, he is clear that he is writing to fortify the faith of a man named Theophilus, who is unknown to us, but is likely a very reputable person uh, based on the honorifics. But he's also writing for whomever would read, that they would have confidence in the history, the story of Jesus. Interesting, Luke makes no claim to have seen any of the events. He makes no claim to have seen. We do not believe that Luke ever saw or met Jesus, even the resurrected Jesus. Instead, Luke relies upon sources and eyewitness testimony. This is important. Luke is claiming that he is writing history largely based on eyewitness accounts. Now, you and I, we live in a world of CGI, computer-generated images, of AI, artificial intelligence, and Photoshop, where you literally cannot trust what you see. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, around the time that ChatGPT came out at the beginning of the year, uh, someone forwarded a video to me of the Pentagon being bombed. Like, I mean, like it was this real-life video of the Pentagon being bombed. Of course, all of it had been produced by ChatGPT. I knew it was not real because of the way the email had been sent to me, but nonetheless, it was terrifying. Somebody could believe this, okay? We live in a world where you cannot automatically trust what you see. And as the JFK assassination video would show you, even if you have the video, you don't, not everybody agrees on the interpretation, right? So how do you trust something? How do you know something? I mean, I can't fly to Washington, D.C. whenever there's a video about the Pentagon, right? You'll never be able to verify every part of a story. What has to happen? You have to ask the question, is this person, is this source generally trustworthy? It's a huge question in our world. Do the stories they tell generally reflect what we know to be true about X, whatever it is? And Luke, in these four verses, is presenting himself as a trustworthy historian, a trustworthy source. He's saying, I've investigated, 
I've read the sources, I've cross-checked them, I've compared, I've interviewed the witnesses, and I'm laying out an orderly account. I'm giving specific details about geography, about history, about people, even about genealogies. Consider, look with me at verse 5. In verse 5, this is kind of the beginning of the story. We're not going to look at these verses, but this is to illustrate the point I'm making about history. Luke names a historical figure who is known in a specific locale, Herod of Judea. Then he tells a story more locally of a man and a woman. He tells us what that man's job was to which clan he belonged. This is not vague. I mean, there'd be people in Judea would know, oh yeah, there was or there was not a Zechariah and an Elizabeth. He is giving details. You see, Luke and all the gospel writers, all, all ancient historians, by the way, are using eyewitnesses. It's the reason there are so many names in the gospel. Because so many of the eyewitnesses lived within the time of the written record, right? There could be people who knew or remembered and could dispute what Luke was writing. That's why he cites so much. There's no video. There's no audio. But Luke is saying, I am writing the truth and the eyewitnesses can attest for me. Just as a quick aside, Luke, the Gospels are not the only place that Jesus is mentioned. Many ancient historians, including Tacitus, Josephus, and Pliny the Younger, all mention Jesus. The life and events of Jesus are among the most attested of any figure in ancient history. Now, why am I belaboring this? This is not that fun to talk about, right? Why am I belaboring this in the opening sermon? Because it's super important. <laughs> because what Luke is saying He's saying, I'm wanting to write and fortify your faith, Theophilus and all the readers. But that faith is based on history. Based on history. Is faith required? 100%. Can this be proven historically beyond a shadow of a doubt? No, it cannot. But is there a high degree of confidence? Yes, there is. I've belabored this because so many want to turn Christianity into an idea or a philosophy which is great until the philosophy or the idea is no longer popular. If it's not historical, this idea of Christianity might be plausible in the year 1723, but not plausible in 2023. Orthodox Christianity is stubbornly historical. One of the reasons that we say the Apostles' Creed right before we come to the table is because we're confessing historical facts about what we say we believe. As we talked about a few weeks ago, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, historical fact, you will be saved. Salvation is about believing that something happened historically. History is not the end of the matter, but history matters. Okay? So that's the intro. He's making a historical claim. Now, if you want to get a little deeper waters, stay with me. The theological claims, look at verses 26 to 38. Jesus, I'm going to skip over the narrative of John the Baptist Annunciation and come to the Annunciation to Mary of the birth of Jesus. And there's so much that could be said in verses 26 to 38. I mean, you could preach multiple sermons there. There's kingly language there, messianic language, salvation language. There's fulfillment language. There's this fascinating character, Gabriel. Gabriel's one of the only people that shows up in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Interesting guy, right? Or angel. Don't know what to think about angels. Somebody asked me about angels recently. I was like, I got no idea. Um, but let's cut to the chase about what's happening here. An angel is speaking to a virgin, telling her that she is going to conceive a child who will be the son of the Most High, and he'll reign forever. 
She's like, well, how's that going to happen? This is his response, verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. (laughs) Friends, this is arguably the greatest miracle of all time. God becomes one of us. God gets low. God gets small. He becomes one of us. Without ceasing to be God, God became a person. It's the first Christian miracle. It may be the greatest. I think it's a coin flip between this and the resurrection. Now, before you dismiss this or any miracle, and we'll talk more about miracles when we get to the healings of Jesus, but I know that there are some listening who say, or you know someone, who are like, I don't believe in miracles. I believe in science. I believe in math. I actually may even believe that Jesus happened historically, but I cannot accept the Jesus of the Bible because I cannot accept miracles. Well, I cannot stand up here this morning and prove to you the existence of miracles. But if you will allow me, if you will allow me, if science is what you believe in, if science is what you believe in, then you believe in at least one miracle. No matter how you frame it, if you believe in science, you believe in at least one miracle. You either believe in the Big Bang, which says that something came from nothing, and that there were certain principles and a fine-tuning of the universe that commenced... Something came from nothing. Or if you deny that there is a beginning, which some do, if you're like the causes just keep going back, if you say that, there is no beginning, there is no Big Bang, there is, it's always been, well, that is its own, I'm getting technical here, that is its own singularity, something without precedence. Because our universe knows nothing, knows nothing that has no beginning. And so something that is singular like that is by definition... A miracle. One writer puts it this way. Modern science is based on the principle, give us one free miracle, and we'll explain the rest. (laughs) The one free miracle is the appearance of mass and energy in the universe and the laws that govern it in a single instant from nothing. The scientists are kind of like, trust the science, trust the math, but grant us this one really big miracle that something came out of nothing. Now, that's a thumbnail sketch. Surely a straw man, my knowledge of science is quite limited. But what I'm contending, and I will stand by this, we all believe in miracles. We all believe in miracles. The question is, what miracle do you believe? That's the question. What miracle do you believe? Luke is contending, Christians confess, that God became one of us in the womb of a young peasant girl without ceasing to be God. That is what Luke is... I mean, this... This boggles the mind. This is the first act of saving history. There, is a, there was a pregnant teenager in the backwaters of the Roman Empire who carried God, and that was the beginning of the whole plan of salvation in her womb. It's a massive claim, both about God and, frankly, also about humanity. And there's many implications. Let me highlight, too, about Jesus becoming one of us, God becoming one of us in Jesus First is this, God has entered his own story. I think the greatest challenge to Christianity, you want to know what the, the greatest, I think the hardest thing for Christians to answer is, how does an all-powerful, all-loving God allow suffering and evil? I think that's a legitimately hard question for Christians to answer. How does an all-powerful, all-loving God allow suffering and evil? And I want to say, I don't think there's a great answer to the why. I don't. But there is a response There's no answer, but there is a response. And the response is God entered the story. Which is to say God in Jesus took his own medicine. He became one of us. 
So if you today are suffering pain, maybe it's cancer, maybe it's something in someone you love, maybe you're suffering injustice, you are fired, something was withheld from you, a bonus or something, maybe you're feeling lonely, betrayed, tired, you are feeling hurt, you are feeling the evil, the brokenness, the injustice of the world. Our God got low. Our God came in and took the... He felt all those things to an infinite degree. He felt everything that you and I could feel. God had the courage to take his own medicine in the person of Jesus. But not only has he experienced that, friends, he has redeemed and is redeeming that. Because the second implication is this. In this very first act, I love this. There is the promise of the whole story when Jesus is in the womb of Mary. Look with me at verse 33. Because this is what the angel says to Mary. He, your son, will reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, at Jesus' first coming, there was the promise of his second coming. When he will make all things new, he will come back to reign forever. He will wipe away the tears from our eyes. There will be no more death or sickness or anything evil or bad. He will wipe away our tears. Jesus coming into history is the beginning of the great reversal. God became one of us to undo this mess that we live in. The miracle of Christmas. Now I acknowledge this has been a more heady sermon than I like to preach, especially to start off a sermon series and especially when it's hot. Uh, Theological claim, historical claim. Yawn. I got school supplies to buy. I'm going to a new school this year. My boss is breathing down my neck. I don't feel very well. I've got a doctor's appointment. And you're talking about theological and historical claims. Well, let's get thirdly and quickly to the personal claim. I love, the more I've studied Mary, the mother of Jesus, I just, I I love her. She is the first believer in Jesus. Without a lot of info, she says, and I commend to you to meditate on this verse, verse 38. Take these verses, write them on your, put them on your mirror, wherever you, on your phone, wherever. Mary says this, in response to all this craziness, she simply says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. <laughs> Take those words and just like, just, what, is that, what would it look like for me to say that to God? to this historical and theological claim. Mary believed that God's in charge. I'm the servant of the Lord. I'm your servant. She's willing to receive the blessing, the goodness. That's actually important, receiving God's goodness. And she is open to what God is calling for her in her life. She does not know what all this means, but she is willing to follow. I love the fact that her belief and her obedience precede her understanding. Her belief and her obedience precede precede her understanding. Now, you might think it'd be cool to be the mother of Jesus, right? You know, angels talking to you, people call you the mother of God. That's the theological term is she's the mother of God. Um, I think you could say that well within the bounds of orthodoxy. Angels speak to you, people revere you. I mean, she's like one of the most written about women in the history of the world. But her life, her life didn't turn out the way she thought it would. You got to think that she thought, you know, she's kind of from this kind of rural place that she was going to marry a nice Jewish boy, maybe with a name like Joseph. Uh, She was going to raise a family and look forward to grandchildren, right? You know, the first century version of the white picket fence. She did not ask for what happened to her. 
But she accepted. She followed. At some point in her life, and this thing is most tender for me. I don't know when she would have realized this. Maybe it was at the cross. But she, as the mother of Jesus, realized that not only was Jesus going to die, Jesus was going to die for her. And imagine being a mother and realizing that because of you, because of you, your son has to die. Can't imagine being Mary. But if all of what I've said is true historically and theologically, and I claim Luke does that it is, this means something for you. This has a claim upon your life. So where are you today? Responding to the God who became one of us, who entered the womb of a virgin, who became a human being. Because following Jesus will mean that you'll die to yourself. He makes absolute claims on your life. He says, follow me, and he doesn't tell you what the future is going to look like. But following him also means resurrection. Following Jesus will take you places you never imagined. It will cause you to think thoughts you never imagined or thought of before. It will cause you to embrace things and people that you never did before. Because you are following the crucified and resurrected Messiah. And as he was in Mary, Mary, he was actually in her womb. He is in you if you call upon his name. It is a historical claim. It is a theological claim. It is massive. So if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, what does it look like for you to say with Mary, let it be as you have said, I am the servant of the Lord. I will follow your word. If you're not a follower, if you're a skeptic, I love the story of Tom Holland. About 2016, he, he's like, he, he realized he'd been wrong about Christianity. And by the time 2020 rolled around, he started going back to church. He wasn't sure that he'd believe the stories. He wasn't sure specifically about the miracles, but he started going back to church. And he rejected the secular, uh, the secular liberal project, just the, the materialist worldview. I don't know where he is in his faith today. But maybe that's you, just taking a step, starting back to church, tuning in on, online, whatever it is. To cl- and especially this fall, as we look at this unexpected Jesus, this person who changed the course of history and can change your life. Consider him, Jesus, unexpected. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you. It's such good news that your son became one of us. It is such astonishing news that we can never get over. Your son, Lord Jesus, you, are, you never get old. You're always fresh. You're always new. There's always more we can learn. Thank you for that. Thank you for your love, your justice, your mercy. Everything that you are, Lord Jesus, And I pray that you would be with us this week and in the weeks to follow, that you would show us more of yourself. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.